Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Batier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with Alex Rosenfeld, founder and managing director of Climate Impact Capital. Climate Impact Capital is a mission-driven impact investing firm focused on mitigation and adaptation to climate change. While I have had other investors on in the past, something we haven't really focused on yet is impact investing. So I'm glad to welcome Alex to the show today and discuss what impact investing is from his perspective. So Alex, thank you for joining me today on the show. If you would please share with me and the audience your background, and a quick introduction to Climate Impact Capital. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Joe. It's a pleasure to be here and, and to share a little bit about Climate Impact Capital with your audience. Uh, the premise of Climate Impact Capital came to me from over 20 years of working in energy innovation at large international energy and oil and gas companies. And what I saw was while there was often a strong desire uh, to increase innovation. And over the last decade, a, a stronger and stronger desire and goal to improve the environmental performance, including lately the climate change performance within energy companies, they were struggling very deeply with embedding innovation internally and finding partners in the external venture capital and private equity worlds that would provide them strategic impact value. And I left a Royal Dutch Shell in order to, find, to create a firm that would just do that, focus on corporate impact innovation with the mindset that that will drive global climate innovation and impact. Thank you for that introduction. And it's it's very exciting to hear all of that and the and the goals of climate impact capital. I want to start with a baseline understanding for myself and for the audience. So from the from the basic bare bones, what is impact investing? It's a good question and there has been a lot of back and forth about what is impact investing and it probably depends on who you're talking to. In a lot of parts of the world, um, and financial world particularly, impact investing has been really seen previously as philanthropic, where you put your money in and you don't expect to get it back at all or get only part of it back. I, I think that's been, been changing, and certainly we don't view it as philanthropic. We believe that impact investing is investing wherein 
the money that is in, that is invested will grow and multiply through the creation of goods and products that have positive societal impacts as well as financial returns and the financial returns are what will allow that company or that product to gain market traction, grow worldwide, and provide a fair return to its investors. Without that return on that capital, uh, whether it's a smaller return because the investments are being reinvested into into the company or delayed until that company goes uh, public or it's sold earlier, it doesn't matter as long as there's a public good to be created. And that's the type of impact investing we're driving for. the, the way to kind of I, I look at it differently than what a lot of financial investors look at, if, to give you another example, is that in a, a typical venture capital portfolio, even among energy and climate investors, they typically look for this rule where out of 10 investments, there'll be one quote unquote unicorn. A couple of ones will pay your money back and the rest, maybe 70 percent will just go bankrupt. But when you look at that from a impact perspective, many of those goods and services that didn't make it to the market and didn't scale could have actually had a significant positive impact on society. They just weren't being managed in a way that those companies survived or that perhaps there wasn't enough profitability in the way that they were being managed. Our view is that when you invest into a company, you should look at what that overall impact is and do your utmost to find ways for those products and services to survive and do what do what they do best is to provide a, a service that the, the public and private center walks wants. That is that makes makes complete sense and that's a good perspective and understanding of of having both that that value for for investing. You have that that return that you expect, but then also that important part for for the environment and for the community as a whole of having a a positive social impact. So I understand that that value and it makes complete sense having the having that monetary reward, but also that clear social benefit that's almost almost more important in some scenarios. And I think it's clear why impact investing would matter at the community level, because you're ultimately getting that in that value back. You're building local resiliency to that known problem. But when it comes to a larger corporation, why would a larger corporation want to pursue that impact investing? Yeah. So, I think all the corporates have for a while now kind of recognized the benefits of ESG. So looking at their environmental, social, and governance scorecards. Uh, I think more recently, they're also beginning to realize that just being environmentally stewardship and also trying to reduce their own emissions may not be enough, and they're trying to now move forward into really looking at their carbon intensity and changing their business models. So I think the, the the road to the energy transition and changes in how we approach to climate change is a road that we'll continue to, to follow. 
But for the corporates, they are still in the end investing in order to create a new business around which they can sell products and services. So from their perspective, when we look at what is a strategic impact versus a social impact, there's an opportunity to align those two things. And the reason is this, is a company might invest in a product or a service startup that doesn't have a huge return potential. So there may be a, a chance to do a 20%, 30% return on that investment, which is not enough that you know a venture capitalist would typically invest in that company or certainly uh, follow on. But the product or service, when added to that company's portfolio, might have a lot of value. It might help them retain market share, might help them grow the company, might l- allow them to enter a new market. And they might see 10x or 100x of value internally through integrating that product and through selling that product as a part of a suite of services that they have. And that's for them is impactful to their bottom line. And certainly they're also caring about the environmental and and climate stewardship at the same time. So if we can get them to to embed those products and services and at the same time grow, we'll be able to create the the environmental, the climate impact, the social impact, as well as the strategic impact. And from what we try to do is we try to identify the companies and services that we can integrate into a suite of products that will only generally be successful if they're working together as a product set that these corporates can then create businesses around. And by creating those businesses, they then further impact their own ESG and carbon intensity goals, while at the same time, bring products and services at a scale that they otherwise would not have made it into the market. That's a really, a really unique perspective and, and something that sounds so intuitive of taking, taking these multiple companies, putting them together to make a, a greater impact and also for a, a large corporation, it makes sense that they would want to get that return, but also find something that ultimately gives them a a longer runway for their company and increases their their sustainability as a company for the long term, but also then helps bring them into this future realm of of a low carbon society. Why is this not something that that you've been able to see in corporations and in their venture capital arms? I, I think the challenge has been is that there's still a lot of hesitancy about taking a leap into this area of new business and new energy and climate transition. For the most part, the energy companies are still in fact, dipping their toes. You know, the numbers might show that they're putting in tens of millions, sometimes hundreds of millions, but the amount of money they're putting in their regular business dwarfs that still by far, 100x, 1,000x by sometimes. So for them, venture generally is more, unfortunately, about learning and maybe bringing some technologies into their core businesses to improve efficiency. There's very few companies that actually have taken kind of the really big next steps into this energy transition, which I think is unfortunate given you know the 
relatively small time we have before we get to the kind of point of no return, whether it's two or two and a half degrees. Uh, you know, there are some good examples out there. I think um, Shell has taken some very strong positive steps with their new energy team, where they've been acquiring a number of companies. And they're pursuing that through a traditional kind of M&A strategy, as are other private equity groups. But you can also understand that there's not a lot of companies that have the balance sheet of Shell or many of these private equity groups that they can acquire these companies. And so they're following what they've been traditionally told to do by Silicon Valley is have these portfolios and you know, supposedly learn enough to be able to change. And, you know, we believe for for that majority, probably that 98% of the companies, that's a failing strategy. Yeah, it sounds like you kind of are setting yourself up for failure because a lot of the stories that I hear from from larger larger companies is that ultimately, say you're you're an operator in oil and gas, your job is to produce hydrocarbons that's what you're good at and so trying to develop a new widget or a new piece of software to lower your carbon footprint oftentimes that's that's not even your core business so throwing five or ten million at somebody else to try and do it and then figure out how to bring it in it just doesn't doesn't seem like it works it's correct and 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 the incentives are completely misaligned Everyone who's been working in oil and gas for any any period of time typically works for a company that has a good pension plan, good benefits. Why would they take the risk of doing something that's long term? Will maybe bring benefits well beyond you know their time in the job. And if something wrong happens and where they take their eye off the ball of the regular job, you know they they might get fired or not get promoted. So there's no incentive to to change among the rank and file of of, of the companies. And that's why we believe the model of having you know, external partners and creating this integrated solution outside of your core. And then once it's integrated, you bring it in as, as, as a whole solution. You know, this is, you know, that's what IBM did with the PC, right? They, they spun it out. They grew it until it was, you know, quite a large firm before they brought it back into the parent. And a lot of companies, you know, they're out there, they realize that is you have to grow innovation outside and then have a really clear, large channel to bring it in as a whole new business rather than a little piece that's distracting someone who's not, you know, doesn't have the P&L responsibility to do much with it. Hmm. Yeah, I, I like that. And it it's a great perspective thinking about bringing that innovation inside. And that's that's really what you and, and Climate Impact Capital are doing is combining and integrating all of those different technologies that you see make this, this larger impact. I want to talk a little bit more about, about the business model from that side. More what we've been saying in my mind is the conceptual side. This is how you integrate and build positive impactful solutions how do you actually do that from a from a practical side what is that what does the day-to-day look like building up those solutions by combining technologies well the, the the first part starts with identifying the areas where we see significant disruption 
that'll be happening in the industry. Uh, we saw about six, seven years ago, the need for deep decarbonization of the upstream in oil and gas in terms of methane management. We started on that, looking at technologies for methane management, flare management. Uh, we began seeing the need for microgrids and for integrated management of power for oil fields well before the freeze in Texas that took down a lot of the oil and gas fields that caused further disruptions. We had been um, advocating for better uh, field management of power. And then when that start, you know, even before that started happening, we, we really began seeing the vulnerability of the U.S. grid as well as the European grids and uh, power grids, that is. And we began under looking at how that needs to transform into integrated microgrids. So we, we begin seeing these areas of challenge that are driven by a combination of climate change, social change, and energy transition. And then based on that, we go out and find the companies that are going to be most disruptive. So that's the first step of that is understanding where the, where the problems are, find who's going to be impacted. And then to the, the nuts and bolts of it is, you know, we still need to work with our clients as to where geographically, where business-wise, they, will, will, they feel they will be ready to go in a 5, 10, 20-year period to identify what is strategic for them. Um, We've looked at lots of aspects within, as example, the areas of power grid stabilization, whether you look at electric vehicle integration or solar integration or novel building management systems for energy efficiency, and begin thinking about where does that become a business for someone? And when we begin identifying that business that a number of our clients are excited about, we begin searching for a set of companies that would build the Lego blocks of that. And what's particular to the way we look at it is we don't necessarily believe that you need to have the quote unquote best or most popular uh, companies in your portfolio. It's kind of like in, in, in major sports. If you have all stars on your team, they don't necessarily always work together. But if you bring together a lot of good players with core skills, you can get a pretty good team. And that's what we try to do is we find a lot, a lot of good companies with core skills, good IP, good management, and see how we can overlap those skills, that technology to create a, a set, a suite of bundled solutions that when you put them together will outplay each of the, the stars individually. As you were talking about that, the first thing that popped into my head was Moneyball. And it almost sounds like that's kind of exactly what you're doing is you're taking all of these pieces that Maybe if you're adding them up, mm -hmm. you get to one or you get to a full team, but realistically, you're not adding them, you're, you're multiplying them because they build off of each other and they fill in gaps. So instead of a, a 2x return from two all-stars, you're getting a 5 to 10x return from your now complete total package. Is that yeah. a, a fair way to look at it? That's a that's a very great analogy, and I, I really love the movie. And if you kind of take it a little bit further, if uh, is you know, the players or the companies that you know would go into portfolio such as that, because they're not recognized as kind of the the leading players, you, you can come in at a significant discount to the top players, and that provides a lot of risk management for your investors, right? Um, 
and the companies are also because of that they're more interested in being team players so it's it's a, a win overall for everyone yeah i like that so right now i want to give you an opportunity to highlight one of your one of your favorite solutions that your team has developed so if you want and and if we can can you walk me through one of these examples of a kind of a several companies you've compiled and made a a larger solution out of so a uh, good good question on that um we we don't disclose the the suites of companies that that we do uh because they're specifically for our clients. Uh, but I can talk about kind of one of the areas that we're, we're very excited about and that we have made some public investments in. Uh, one is uh, in a company called uh, 60 Hertz. They provide operations level uh, management uh, and services for, for microgrids. And why we were excited about that company was that they provided tools for people in the field for a very much growing ecosystem of solar integrated with diesel, integrated with charging that we in our country and frankly all around the world don't have enough operators uh, to service. And so when we look at a company like that as, as a company in portfolio, you begin now thinking about what else can you tie that into? Well, you now can begin looking at what are opportunities to invest into lower cost technologies that maybe need a little bit more kind of love and care at the service level, but cost a lot less as you're trying to bring more technologies into rural areas, into developing countries. Uh, you could look at how to integrate uh, solar technologies much better with diesel systems because you have now you know people on the ground to to do that and then certainly you know once you have a better microgrid system you can now begin looking to integrate uh, what's kind of exciting right now in this world of uh, micro credits in and um, for car for carbon and co2 and beginning to say well can we now begin to lower carbon intensity across a wa wide swath of energy producers and energy users through better management of power and, and demand. And those are the types of solutions we think about trying to bring together in, in a suite. Thank you for that answer that it's really exciting always to talk about microgrids and and hearing hearing the way you explain it is is fun to think about all the different things you mentioned there, solar, diesel, and and what popped into my mind because I, I did my PhD in Alaska looking at geothermal. So I've I've seen many people get very excited about micronuclear, specifically for Alaska. And I've also seen wave projects, tidal projects. If if you don't mind, in Alaska, what are you excited about in terms of kind of next generation energies? Well, it's a, it's a good question. We we haven't looked at any technologies particular to Alaska, other than uh, you know the company we invested in. But I, I think a suite of technologies that I find generally very exciting that I think would be very applicable to Alaska is uh, geothermal. Uh, right now, we're experiencing a potential renaissance in geothermal. And when I say geothermal, I'm not talking about 
kind of the old really hot rocks that you know that you might kind of see out in um, you know some places near hot springs in California or out in uh, Iceland. I'm talking about kind of lower temperature general geothermal where which you can access in many parts around the country. And right now you're seeing like 20 or so years ago the application of technologies that led to whether you like it or not, the renaissance in hydraulic fracking, all of those people are leaving hydraulic fracking and saying, let's apply these technologies to drilling geothermal wells. Let's apply these technologies to heat transfer within geothermal. And I think there's a very good potential, and certainly no guarantees, but we can go down the same cost curve that we did for hydraulic fracking and you know, with geothermal. And that technology would be a game changer, not only for Alaska, but what for a lot of businesses, because you can site geothermal pretty much anywhere. Um, you geothermal has a very low footprint on the ground, much smaller than solar. It doesn't have you know the issues for wind, and other unlike solar and wind, it is available twenty four seven. And I think that's that's very exciting, and it certainly would be a game changer for Alaska because even in the cold winters, you'd be able to get geothermal power. I really like your answer. I completely agree and i am always a promoter of geothermal so whenever somebody has the opportunity to talk about geothermal i love to open the floor wide open and let them go so it's very exciting to hear your excitement about geothermal yeah and and i'll, I'll tell you the, one more thing can i be a little bit more excited about geothermal just for one yeah, second go for it okay uh so one of the most i think exciting things about geothermal is I think some of these geothermal technologies can also be used for CO2 sequestration. Uh, CO2 is a pretty good working uh, fluid, um, especially that you know when, when it's uh, compressed and supercritical. And with some of these reservoirs that are a little bit porous, you can potentially be pumping CO2 in, bringing back, bring it back out. Getting recovering the energy as it heats up, but also intentionally sequestering some of the CO2 in whatever reservoir that you're pumping it down into uh, underground. I think that can be quite exciting as well if you can you know, manage to do both. So that's my, my other part that I'm, I'm quite excited about to see if we can begin merge, merging power production with sequestration. So we'll, we'll see if that happens. Yes, I I am all about the supercritical CO2 EGS demonstrations. I think I think that they do have strong merits and as you point out the the reasons for for pursuing that opportunity have have very strong merits and are very very exciting and attractive goals. Just out of curiosity, when you're looking at something like that, either from a from an investment standpoint, in my mind, from a technical standpoint, I would say I think that's ten to fifteen years out. Where does it where does something like that that feels like it's pretty far away, how does that fall into an investment category? Yeah. It's a, a good question. Um, you know, for me, I don't I think you know, maybe I'm being optimistic in this one of the one of the areas I'm I am actually optimistic on is I, I think ten years out 
we might have actually a very active and very large project suite of of geothermal around the country. I I don't think it's going to take 10 years to prove out geothermal. I think it's going to be proven out in the next two to three years uh, because there's only engineering and project risk for for most of these things. They need need the money to try the wells. If it works, they'll do more and the cost will will come down. So uh, from that perspective, I think geothermal is probably one of the lower risk things to be investing in from a technical perspective and, and a return perspective. Uh, but there are a lot of other technologies that are further out there, and that it it's becomes actually quite a bit of a challenge uh, for corporations uh, because while they all want to be innovative, they all want to invest into areas that are impactful and, and re- return money on, they do have a challenge of looking beyond typically a five-year horizon for, for investment return. And so what we do end up often doing is having portfolios that are generally geared towards creating value and being val- creating value being that there's products and services uh, available that are integrated within five years of our investment. And so if you're familiar with the technology readiness levels where nine is the, for your audience, is something that's fully commercial and out there, uh, and one being completely hypothetical back back piece of, uh, back of the envelope, uh, we, we typically look at technology readiness levels uh, six through eight uh, for our investments for the corporates, uh, because those are things that we can typically get into a pilot, into commercial, and integrated within that uh, that time frame that that they need. And for anything else, uh, it would really end up being something that's really more tied to a corporate's longer term R and D goals, which I think is also a great place to be investing in, in bundles of technologies. But we have really yet to see any corporate that's you know, even within a football's field lengths of, you know, getting that far along in, in their investment strategy. Hmm. Thanks for that. That helps put things into perspective and in understanding where and how, how this technology is being developed. Now, I want to change topics just a little bit. One thing that I want to talk about before, before letting you go, we... I read part of the, I guess, mission statement off of your website for Climate Impact Capital. And you focus on companies providing mitigation and adaptation solutions to climate change. Now, adaptation is something that I guess I don't talk about very often, although I feel like that is something that that we all need to be thinking about. But it's it's kind of the the less attractive side of of the climate change discussion. So I guess with with that, why why do you focus on adaptation as one of your investment strategies? Yeah. So we do, we don't focus on adaptation solely. Uh, what we look for are technologies that provide both adaptation and mitigation within the product suite. And what I mean by that is is that the technology is in some way reducing 
uh, climate uh, change through reducing emissions, through increasing efficiency, uh, through capturing CO2. But at the same time, it is preparing us for the world that's already here uh, that is much more hot, much more humid, has much more variance in that. And our favorite example in that, which I think most people will understand, are are microgrids, right? Going back to kind of our favorite, one of our favorite topics. So we have all seen, and you know, within the last five years, multiple issues with our power grids here in Texas, and probably if you're in other states like California, you've seen as well. In California, it's wildfires. Uh, there's very few doubters that the wildfires are bigger, hotter, and more furious than they have ever been, and that a lot of that is attributed to climate change. Uh, larger and bigger freezes are more likely to happen as well as prolonged heat waves. And all of those things are impacting our power grids. So when we look at from an investment point of view for microgrids that are solar based, the more solar we put in, the more we can reduce our reliance on fossil fuels that are emitting uh, a CO2 and methane emissions. But at the same time, those microgrids can be operated separately. They can support each other. And in a world where you might have more power line failures, more failures of other uh, parts of the system, whether it's because natural gas plants are going offline because it's too hot uh, for them to run, like we just had in, in Texas, or whether it's a lack of water or uh, to run hydro, you're able to have these distributed systems that provide resiliency for critical services and for basic services uh, throughout the communities, even when the central power is not working as you like. And that's, that's our view of how you provide both adaptation, resiliency, and mitigation. Okay, I understand now, and and that is very helpful, and sounds like a good strategy. We we are in a a brave new world, we are in a warmer world, and we should well we we need to adapt to that. And so having that built in resiliency and and modifying or evolving the grid to be able to handle all of these new environmental hazards or more frequent environmental hazards, it it is a a good business decision and a better decision for for us as as people living in this world. So with that, I've got a few more final questions. These ones are a little bit different, a little bit more fun. The first one being what is a favorite book that you would recommend? Oh goodness. Um, well, I'll I'll recommend a book related to our 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 topic. Um, and so this is my most recent favorite book, and it is the uh, Ministry for the Future. So I don't know if you've had a chance to to read that. It's a, a, a somewhat dystopian but hopeful book about what needs to get done um, at the global policy level for us to. Uh, battle climate change with the premise that the future generations, the ones that aren't voting and the ones that haven't been born, uh, also have a right to be heard and have a right to be represented at the conference of the parties and at global negotiations, and that a ministry under the UN is set up to deal with that and then you know, a lot of fun ensues. So so I, I like that book because it's based on politics, policy, and economics. Um, 
and it gives a very realistic near-term future, but still shows that there's hope in changing things in the right direction. It sounds like a great book, and it it reminds me of conversations that I've had with with different indigenous tribes and and Native Americans in charge of of large tracts of public land or large tracts of natural resources. And their focus has always been not only the next generation, but the next two or three or four generations. And this sounds like it it is exactly along those lines. And I, I think that's the way we all need to be thinking is is not just for us and our children, but really for our children's children and beyond. So the next question, when will we be net zero as a society? Oh, that that's a, a tough one. There's, you know, the the when would I like us to be net zero versus when we'll actually be there. Um, unfortunately, I think we're going to be there too late. Um, and when that too late is, uh, I'm not sure. It is probably going to be well beyond uh, 2050. Um, I, I think we certainly can get there. I think the technology is there, and um, you know, we will either get there through a positive scenario or through a negative scenario. I, I hope it is uh, the former, but we will we will get there. And certainly, I think either of those scenarios will will likely happen before twenty one hundred. All right. Well, I have to say, for as energetic and enthusiastic as you are, this is the most pessimistic answer yet. So, kudos to you for for giving us that <laughs> to clarify i think that i think that that is a a completely relevant and fair answer and i completely agree we are either going to do an about face and head up a positive trajectory or we will continue flying this plane into the ground one way we will be at net zero in the in the next 100ish years yeah i i i I'm a very much big believer and proponent of understanding natural systems. Uh, I learned about system dynamics when I was at M MIT and always been trying to understand and kind of apply that to the, to the extent I, I can. And, you know, systems tend to resolve either for the better or for the worse. Uh, very few systems with a lot of variance uh, stay at steady state. And we've injected a lot of variance in the system. So we're either going to have to fix that or it's going to go one way or the other. That's just the way of, of, of systems. And, uh, you know, I'm hoping more and more people will understand that and begin thinking uh, about circular economy, natural systems financial systems and all these things that we need to do to bring everything in order because it's not just about technology it's about how societies work about policies about uh, the rights of women the rights of minorities the rights of indigenous peoples and how we bring that all together into society because without all of that we're not going to be able to get to net zero mm -hmm. yep absolutely well with that the last question is actually now you get to ask me a question well, 
you know the audience can't see it, but you know you you, you I, you've you've had a great smile on your face throughout the interview. I appreciate that. So you know there must be things that that make you optimistic. So please tell tell me something that would make me and other listeners optimistic and help us kind of get up each morning to kind of do what we do to bring new technology, new innovation uh, to fight climate change and, and improve the environment. Tell, tell, tell us a good story. A good story. Or, or, or something from, that you've heard from one of your podcasts that gives you a lot of, you know, hope for the future. Yeah. Well, I think the, the best, the best thing I can say is an observation from from just my experience in the past 10 months, I've only been doing this podcast for 10 months, but in that time, I've been able to interview so many smart, amazing people who are, who literally are changing the world. And through that process, I have, I've gotten to interview larger service companies in oil and gas. I've gotten to interview large offshore operators, and I've gotten to interview people who are working in the farming industry as well, well, farming industry, in the agriculture sector, and then different investors and people like yourself who are, who are actively making these great solutions possible by providing the capital and providing the pathways to demonstration and into commerciality and into adoption. So I think the more I talk to people who are actually trying to solve the problems, the more excited I get because there are so many changes and so many great innovations occurring, even from something as simple as, as, commercial scale agriculture. There are massive active changes trying to actively show people how regenerative agriculture can can be more profitable, not only for the farmer, but also for the environment and also for society. And then helping individual small operators with 10 wells not only improve their production rates, but also significantly decrease their carbon footprint when for them carbon footprint is probably the last thing on their mind so it just i guess without without giving a single story i just get excited by by listening to these conversations that that i get to have and seeing all of the great innovation that's occurring so if people are out there and excited for what they're doing and and that excitement is is something that they think they they want to share with the world i say get on one two or or seven podcasts and tell as many people as you can and i think that will excite others to keep doing what they're doing I, I love that. I think sharing stories is is so important. Uh, you know, people um, underestimate the the power of stories and how it resonates. So, I, you know, keep keep doing this, Joe. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast with you. Well, thank you, Alex. And before we sign off, thank you for joining me. Is there anything else that you'd like to say? Oh, good. Last last words. Um, 
you know, I, I'd really like to encourage people to um, use the power that they have in democratic and free countries to go out and vote. There is nothing more important than voting. Um, I'm not saying which way you should vote, but if we all vote and vote our conscience, I think we will get to a a better society. And uh, recently read that the power of one vote and getting uh, legislation passed is more powerful than most things we can do from our carbon budget individually. So that's what I would encourage people to do is go out and help change policy for the better. Well, thank you for those last wise words. I think I'm going to have to have you on a second time to to show some some data on that because that's really, really exciting to think about. Your vote, that one vote has more power than than so much more that that you have out there so with that thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the energy transition solutions podcast please do me a favor give me a five-star rating leave a review share this with a friend doing these actions will help these stories reach a wider audience and as we said today on the show these stories have so much power and so much impact we want these to reach everybody if you want to hear more great stories and keep up to date with the energy industry, connect with OGGN on LinkedIn or visit OGGN.com. And if you're in the Houston area, go try out the Canon, mention OGGN, and they will give you a free day pass. Whenever I'm in Houston, that's where I'm at. And don't forget, it's also where we host our monthly OGGN industry mixers. Now, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.